We will be reading this morning from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. As some of you may know, I've been doing a series through Philippians uh, for the, the church plant at Santa Clarita over the last several months. And we're almost to the end of one passage left out of Philippians, but this was one that I enjoyed preaching on. So I want to share that with you this morning. This is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of the God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have given us your word that we might not sin against you. You have given us your word for life and righteousness, and so we ask this morning that you would bind it to our hearts, that we would be encouraged and nourished to keep in step with your spirit, that we might love you all our days, and that we would be encouraged against the weakness of our flesh and the temptations that we so often find therein. Bless your teaching this day, Lord God, for we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If I can take it, I can make it. If I can take it, I can make it. In 1936, Louis Zamperini, a California native, a young Italian-American, ran for the United States in the 1936 Olympics. Uh, in the years that followed, World War II would ensue, and he would find himself enlisted with the Air Force flying over the Pacific Ocean. Uh, during a search and rescue mission, his plane would crash land into the Pacific Ocean, a thousand miles away from uh, his home base where he was stationed, and he would float for 47 days uh, at sea, only to be discovered by the Japanese and be uh, sent to an internment camp. If I can take it, I can make it. These were uh, his words, at least in the cinematic adaptation of his story. But they were words which encouraged him. They encouraged him to persevere through the dark times and the dark things that he suffered uh, through his journey. He must have reasoned with himself, if I can lose it all, my family, my home, my rights as a human, my, the slow dec decline of my once powerful and broken and strong body, which won an Olympic gold medal, if I can take 
the physical beatings, just one more punch. If I can take all of these things, I can make it through this. And he did. Later, Zamperini would be hailed uh, as an American hero, and his story would be shared across the globe. He would be glorified uh, and exalted in the American media. But quite unlike Zamperini, Christ willingly gave it all for you. He volunteered himself for the sufferings that he would undergo. But like Zamperini, he took the scorn, he took the shame, the beatings, the suffering, and the wrath. And he did this for one purpose, that he might reconcile you and me, sinners, to himself, that we might be united to him in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so being united to him, to Christ, we run faster and longer than Zamperini ever could in his life to Christ and for Christ. The finish line for us is the final day when our bodies will be like Christ's own, when we will have resurrected and glorified bodies and we will know Christ in his fullness. And in in a sense, that's what our text is about this morning, that we have great reason to rejoice because we count everything a loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, having been given his righteousness, being found in him and being united with him in his life death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification. And so we're going to look at this in three points today. The first is life's mantra in verse 1. The second is life's parasite in verse 2 to 6. And the third is life's source in verses 7 to 11. So moving on from Paul's discussion of Timothy and Epaphroditus at the end of chapter 2 and the model they are uh, for believers of the humility, humility of Christ, Paul now moves on to the next list of things that he wants to communicate to this church that he views as essential for their life uh, and perseverance in the faith. And we find that what Paul says here in this new list of things continues at the very heart of the things that he's been communicating. But now he's discussing the center, the apex, and the source of life for Christian joy, humility, unity, and perseverance. These are the themes that he's been dealing with in his letter to the Philippian church. Now, Paul's overarching mantra throughout, throughout this book has been most essentially joy. He stressed that to them, that believers would have joy. And so, once again, this is his focus. And the way that he goes about rooting his, his exhortation to them this time is different. Joy is never abstract. You don't just have joy. It's never achieved by temporary things or from the well of our own life. We have no power in and of ourselves to provide joy for us. Rather, as we find, the life of our joy comes from the one who is living water, the one who is the fountain of life himself, who, in whom we live and move and have our being. And so joy is thus rooted in the gift of righteousness that we have, which depends on faith, a faith which unites us to Christ in his suffering, death, and resurrection. And without this union with him who is life, we have no life. And so we wonder, what cause do we have for rejoicing? We don't have any. We have no reason to rejoice apart from Christ. And so Paul says, my brothers, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord, that's where their joy is rooted. And he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me, but it is a safeguard for you. 
Now, we've all had some kind of experience where we've had to repeat ourselves on numerous occasions, and, and for some of us, it's a pet peeve. It's very annoying. It really ticks us off. How dare you ask me to repeat myself again? How many times do I have to tell you, Philippian church, to have joy, to be guarded by joy in your Christian life? But Paul says here that it's no trouble for him. It doesn't bother him. It doesn't exasperate him. Again, Paul, writing from a Roman prison, encourages these Philippian believers to have joy. Because theologically motivated joy in the Lord realistically faces and transcends all the sorrows and the sufferings caused by living for Christ, not only in a Roman prison, but also in a Roman colony, and we can even say today in an American culture that does not know God. Joy fuels the perseverance of Christians through even the most dire of circumstances, be it persecution, suffering, disunity, or even pride, because its object is Christ. Its object is the suffering servant who suffered far more than we ever could, who drank the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. Paul says it's also a safeguard to them. And this indicates to us that what Paul is about to say to them regarding the reasons and the source of their joy is actually something that is ultimately for their benefit. It's for their benefit of persevering and growing in unity, joy, and humility. And not only that, but as we'll come to find, the efficacy of their faith is at stake in what Paul addresses. In other words, if he does not tell them these things, if he doesn't commend them to have joy and warn them against what he does in the next section... There will be a serious danger for them. And so this safety that is fueled by joy in the Lord will lead them to be unshakable, immovable, and steadfast, assured from danger. It's the kind of safety that's spoken of in Isaiah chapter 41 where it's written, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will safeguard you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I am with you. Joy in the Lord, because we know that we're united to Him and He is with us. Safety is established by the Lord in keeping us from falling into the very things that Paul now warns them to stay away from because they're a parasite. These things will bring death to their life by sucking, as a parasite does, their joy and their life away. So we move to life's parasite. And Paul says here, look out. Look out, look out, beware, beware, beware. Three times Paul says this. He warns them to be on guard. As children, we might watch out, or we might cry out to our parents with urgency uh, when something happens. Dad, 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 mom, mom, mom. And we do this to stress the urgency of which, with which we want their attention. And so the effect of stating something like this three times conveys the importance, the quality, and the urgency of the thing being communicated. And so in this case, unlike the totally awesome, cool thing that you just did that you really want your parents to see, Paul warns the Philippian church to watch out, to beware, to be on guard, to watch out for these three things. So who are the dogs, the evildoers, and the mutilators of the flesh that he's warning them against? Well, this, is the group, uh, this group is well known to us today. They're the Judaizers. They were really plaguing Paul's, uh, Paul's work in many of his churches. Now, Judaizers are people who advocate that the law of Mo- Mo- Moses, and namely circumcision, be kept by Gentile Christians with particular regard to their election. 
Election for the Judaizers was contingent upon and depended upon the recipients of this external sign and often strict observance of the Mosaic law. So this sign, of course, was a covenantal sign established by God to signify to his people that they were his holy people, that they were set apart from the world. It pointed to the fact that the sin of the heart uh, of God's people had been cut off and that they likewise were cut off from the world. And so Paul does not hold back when he addresses these people that misunderstand this sign. He doesn't hold back in the harshness of his condemnation upon them. He calls them dogs, he calls them evildoers, and he calls them mutilators of the flesh. Now, in the ancient world, dogs are not cute and cuddly. They're not man's best friend. Dogs are uh, disgusting beasts. They're rodents that are considered unclean. They eat dead animals, human corpses, and even their own vomit. The enemies of Israel in the Old Testament are called dogs because they are unclean. And Paul now attributes to the Judaizers the harsh term that they once reserved for those pagans who were unclean and not God's people. Because by despising the true humility, the true purity of the heart required of believers, symbolized in this circumcision, they symbolized to themselves that they had become the very people and the very things that they designate for pagans. Unclean, not God's people. But not only are they unclean, they are also evildoers. Though they consider themselves to be servants of the law, servants of righteousness, in contrast to those who uh, do not obey the law, Paul says that these are evildoers. These are evildoers. Their emphasis on the works of the law turns into self-reliance that obscures the need for salvation in Christ. They are evil because their work to convert Gentile Christians uh, maims the church and leads Christians away from life, away from the one who obeyed the law so that, because we could not. And so finally, he calls them also mutilators of the flesh. Mutilators of the flesh because they replace faith in Christ as the basis for election with circumcision. And in so doing, they show that this mutilation, this cutting of the foreskin, is as worthless as the pagan rites, where they would mutilate their flesh in order to earn favor with the gods. These people who sees, see themselves as God's people, Paul paints in the dark colors of paganism here. By denying the meaning of circumcision as a seal of righteousness, uh, the righteousness that is received by faith, they turn this cutting of the foreskin into what is merely a, and simply pagan mutilation. Paul, in each of these three indictments, turns the tables on the Judaizers. The very things that they thought made them the very special people of God were rather signs and witnesses against them, indicating that they were indeed cut off from God. Instead of trusting in Christ's righteousness as that which makes them the special and the holy set-apart people of God, they were trusting in their own works, and in turn they denied Christ and his need, or the need for him. And in propagating this agenda amongst, amongst the Christians, they were destroying the church. But Paul says here to them, we are the circumcision. We are those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh as they do. We don't trust this external sign as the means through which we are made right with God. 
Instead, faith in Christ unifies Gentile and Jewish believers alike as one people, as one people under what circumcision pointed to under the Abrahamic covenant. We are those who truly belong to God's gracious covenant with Abraham. We are those who have ceased striving from our own righteous works and our own efforts of what we supply as the means through which make us right with God. No, we worship and we obey and we come to God by the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the one who removes the defilement of our hearts and the profanity that stains it in what circumcision symbolized. So this physical sign of circumcision does not mark us off as God's people. The Spirit does. Instead of taking pride in this physical sign that we have received and offering lip service to ourselves for our gumption and our our wisdom in receiving this sign, we offer worship to Christ for what He has done in us by His Spirit. For it is the Spirit that enables true life and a true life of obedience, service, and gratitude to God. That's what we make claim makes us worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord, the Spirit applying to us the benefits and the righteousness of Christ. And so it's only natural that our pride and our glory is not in ourselves as the Judaizers Uh, as it was for the Judaizers, but it is in Christ Jesus and His righteousness. And so moving on from his positive statements about what believers have, Paul now adopts an, an incredibly persuasive form of argumentation to address this, uh, this teaching. Essentially, he adapts the worldview of the Judaizers to show from his own life the worthlessness of their teaching. He presents to them the rags that he once took for riches, In terms of what the Judaizers valued, here is Paul's resume before his experience with Christ on the Damascus Road. And as he gives it, he says, look, let me be frank with you, essentially. Let me be frank with you. I have reason to boast in the flesh even more than they do. So he's not condemning the religious system because he can't meet the standard or because it's incompatible with him. It's not as if they have a special club that, Paul, that they're in uh, that you have to have some kind of accolade to get into, and Paul can't make it in, so he just says, I'm going to go make my own. No, Paul meets every check on their box, and it's all vanity. It's all a striving after wind, a worthless pursuit. And not only that, but the way that Paul talks about it shows that it's actually a witness against them. It's a witness against them. So first, Paul says that he was circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the Mosaic law. No Gentile Christian could claim this. Instead, they received circumcision late in their adult life. So it's not in accordance with the stipulations that God gave to Abraham. Second, Paul was of the people of Israel. Another thing that Gentile Christians could not be, even if they bought into this Judaizing lie. His blood is genealogically pure. He is a descendant of patriarchal Israel, God's chosen people. Gentiles could be of the people of Israel, but they could never, uh, never be their race. They would always be second class. Third, Paul says he is of the tribe of Benjamin. He is a, a descendant of Rachel, Israel's favored wife, the only son actually born in the promised land and the only tribe that was faithful to Judah, the line through whom the Redeemer would come. Fifth, as to the law, he is, uh, excuse me, fourth, he says he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. Not only is his blood pure and his tribe loyal, but even now in this Hellenistic culture, he has not capitulated. He hasn't given over to the 
philosophical and religious ideas and mores of his day. He is on the side of those who would rather die than be defiled by food or profane the Holy Covenant. Fifth, as to the law, he says he was a Pharisee. In other words, he knew all 613 of the, of the Pharisees' laws that they derived from the law given to Israel at Sinai. When it came to legal matters, he was morally pure and a superior professional in every regard, far above what they could ever hope for. Sixth, he says, his commitment to zeal, to this system. His zeal for the law leads him beyond uh, uh, that that they could ever hope to have expressed because his passion led him to persecute the church. He led him to persecute those whose religious claims he believed undermined the life and legacy of Israel. And here's the irony with that. Paul's zeal for the purity of God's people, ancient Israel, led him to persecute the true Israel. And finally, as to the righteousness of their system, he was without fault. Not one Gentile could provide a resume of their works more pristine than Paul's. Nobody could do it. Nobody could stand in the face of Paul. And so Paul shows that this is a worthless system. It means nothing. It won't get you anywhere. It won't provide you joy. It won't provide you comfort. It won't make you right with God. And so he moves on to show them instead where life's source really comes from. Who can compete? Who can stand before Paul and make a claim against him or provide a better resume? Nobody can. And yet Paul goes on to say it's worthless. No amount of accolades or works could ever be a source of life for the true covenant people of God. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Not only does he describe it as worthless, but he indicates that it kept him from God. He trusted and he relied on these things and it kept him from faith in the one who would actually make him right. Through Christ, though, now he looks and he says it was a loss, it was a hindrance, it was a vanity, it was a striving after wind. All that really matters now is Christ. Christ is the reason why he considers his former gains as a loss. They all add up to one overwhelming disadvantage, one huge loss. And so the comparison between having these things that Paul once thought were were good, that once thought made him worth something, and knowing Christ, on the other hand, is truly not a comparison at all for Paul. Rather, more and more, by and by, as he grows in his understanding of the riches of God's glory and his grace in Christ, it becomes more and more clear to him that all that he once valued is of infinitely worthless value. He calls it dung, rubbish. It conveys the sense of human excrement. That's what he's calling this here. So it indicates to us a sense of repulsiveness on Paul's behalf. Far be it from me that I should ever trust these worthless rags, this dung to reconcile me to Christ. Here is what I once presented to him as what I thought would get me into heaven. It was a liability. It stunk in his presence. So to consider something as a loss implies that it not only keeps us from Christ, but that we are happy, happy to be rid of it. 
Knowing Jesus is far better such that it leads him to freely give it all away to gain Christ. Let nothing, let nothing at all be a liability on my record that might stand in the way of Christ and Christ alone. As it, as it is written, what will it profit a man if he gains the world and forfeits his life? And as Jesus said in one of his parables, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And in his joy, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought the field. Knowing Christ and being found in him is this treasure. That we should disown all our efforts to climb to him. That we should disown all the things on our resume that hinder us from him. That we'd sell it all, our idols, our merits, our fortunes, to have him and him alone. That we'd go and put everything that we have into this treasure that's hidden in the field. Now, while Paul is specifically addressing those things uh, that people think that they merit and therefore put their trust in, in addition to God's grace, it also carries within its frame of reference here anything that we love or that we hold on to or that we cling to in the place of Christ alone as either the thing that makes us right with God or the source of our joy. And we know well that Calvin said our hearts are idol factories. We're so quick, we're so apt to put our trust, our confidence, our joy in the things of the flesh, the things of this world. And so no matter how precious our riches, our social status, or our moral purity, or anything above or below, all that ultimately matters for Christians is Christ and Christ alone. And so our passage today serves as a sober warning for us. Beware. Watch out, be on guard to not lay the certainty of your salvation or your trust or your confidence in life, your joy, your status with God, whether consciously or subconsciously on anything other than Christ alone, for it will rob you of your spiritual life. It will rob you of your joy. When you trust in the world or the things in the world, merit included, it will deprive you of the power of Christ's resurrection power. And so Paul now understands what those whom he put to death died for. They died because they knew that they had a righteousness not of their own that came from obedience to the law, but they died because they had a righteousness which was appropriated to them by faith. A faith which led them to have joy unshakable, to be willing to be put to death for the sake of this gospel Just as Abraham was declared righteous on account of his faith, so too the true descendants of Abraham, the true descendants of Abraham that he once put to death, those ones, they were declared righteous on account of their faith. That's a marvelous thing. Because their eyes, as Paul goes on, were not fixed on their present circumstances. They were fixed on the power of Christ's resurrection and his ability to make their bodies like his own. Their confidence was in their righteousness that was apart from their own works, but in that which they had by faith. Here's how the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts this righteousness that they have, this justification. It is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. The gospel that he once believed brought death, he, need, he now sees as the only means to be found in him and have true, true life in the new heaven and in, and in the new earth. 
But a distinction ought to be made. As Calvin put it, the righteousness of faith comes forth from God and does not belong to the individual. The treasure that Paul found in the open field was Christ himself, to gain him, to be found in him, to know him, so that through faith he might be pardoned and accepted as righteous in God's sight. But Paul did not find that treasure. It was the treasure that found him. Paul doesn't view faith as a human work. He doesn't view discovering the treasure in the open field, discovering Christ as a human work. That would just be another kind of self-achieved righteousness. Rather, it arises from God's work of grace in our hearts, drawing us to himself. And so Paul has said that everything is a loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing this one, Christ Jesus. And so now he is united to him in every way. He wants to know him, his power, his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed in his death, and that by whatever means possible he may attain resurrection from the dead. Because he hasn't had it yet. He still lives in this body of sin and death. He still struggles against the thorn in his flesh. And so it's the greatest desire of his life to know Christ, to have joy amidst all the suffering that life brings, and to share with him. It's not just that he's saved and he he kicks his feet up and he says, well, that's it. The work is done. I am going to, uh, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to kick it back and relax until Christ comes again. That's not enough to transcend the problems of everyday life under the sun in a sin-cursed world. He wants to know the one that saved him. He is running, running as fast and as hard as he can to know this one that every day of his life, his eyes might be fixed on on the joy that he has in Christ Jesus his Lord. All else is passing. He wants to know him, what he accomplished for him and what he has already ensured for us by his own resurrection. Paul, familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, would be familiar with Psalm 27, where it is written, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I may seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. The power of His resurrection, the power which raised Christ from the dead, is evidence for us now, people of God that we will have bodies like Christ's own, of our own future glorification, evidence that he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead and to deliver us from this sin-cursed world. There, there is power to persevere amidst all the throes of life, its suffering, its death, its temptations, its brokenness, its sin, its inconveniences, and even its persecutors. It's there that we find power to be like Jesus in his death in him. And it's in his death that we remember our sinful selves died with him. For the death of Christ on the cross, which raised Christ from the dead, uh, excuse me, from which he was raised, is the death that put put to death our former sinful stony hearts, so that we now have hearts of flesh, alive in Christ, and able instead to put to death our earthly desires. That's the power that Paul wants to know. That is the power that Paul will do whatever he can to participate in because his eyes are fixed firmly on the resurrection of believers from the dead when Christ comes to make all things new. That pursuit enables him to put on humility, 
to persevere amidst persecution, to have unity with those who he has petty disagreements with, because they too are united with him in Christ. And it enables him to have joy amidst his present circumstances, no matter how dark and dire they may be. We have 2,000 years after Christ has come, 2020 vision. We can look back on all of redemptive history with the knowledge of what Christ has done for us, with confidence in the power of his resurrection, and with hope in the future resurrection of the, from the dead. And Paul was surely right. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then we are the most foolish people of all. So it's the fact that he was raised that gives us any confidence and hope to see clearly all that God has done in history. Now, hindsight is nearly always 2020. You can look back with clarity and see everything that's going on from a bird's eye view. Returning to Louis Zamperini, though, he had no idea. He didn't have 2020 vision. He had no idea what good would come from his loss, from his suffering, or from his taking of all things. He had no idea that if he took all of those things, if he considered them all lost, whether or not he would actually make it back home. He had no idea that if he ran headlong into all of those beatings, that he would actually reach the finish line of deliverance. He didn't even know what deliverance would look like. And frankly speaking, apart from Christ, believers have no idea what we're running and taking it from or what deliverance looks like, what we're running to. But Christ knew when he came down. He knew what he was taking when he came down on the cross to suffer for us. And Christ knew all the things that he would lose, but he also knew all of the things that he would gain by completing his mission. And so he willingly took it all with humility so that he uh, might reconcile us to himself. And now we have a share in that victory, a victory that he won so that we, like him, can take all suffering, lose all earthly pride, only so that we can attain the knowledge of him, being like him in his death and, and attaining the resurrection from the body, from this broken, sinful, painful world. Unlike Zamparini, we know what glory awaits us. We know is a verifiable fact, and therefore we have unshakable, immovable joy, joy that we can make it and that by whatever means possible, we will share with Christ in bodies that know no more sin, in bodies that are no longer able to sin. And so joy spurs believers on to persevere through their circumstances, their struggles, their, with pride, with unity, with weakness, with persecution, all of the things that, that life brings, because the object of our joy is the Savior who came who took all things for us, who suffered, who was crucified for our stead, died, buried, and was resurrected, and now sits at the right hand of God. Joy is unshakable, the unshakable source of Christian life, because it looks at the resurrection of Christ and the power that, that is there, and it knows that the same power dwells in our hearts by the Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead, and which will one day raise our broken, dead bodies from the grave to be like Christ's own. The life of Christian joy is the ultimate knowledge of Christ, the intimate knowledge of our union with him in his earthly advent, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification. So we hold on to that. We keep our eyes fixed firmly on that resurrection, for we know that it is our only hope, our only comfort in life. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, life uh, often brings us so many unexpected things, so many unexpected circumstances, and so many unexpected trials. As your children, we know that they come from you, and our hope amidst them is that one day we will be delivered from this weak and passing world to a world where we'll know Christ in his fullness and where we will no longer experience any sorrow or any shame. Lord, encourage us in our weakness. Give us joy in this week as we go out into the world to deal with that sinfulness face to face. For we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our helper, our redeemer, and our friend. And all God's people said, Amen.